Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, to this edition of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Aaron. Hello. <laughs> well, forgot, hello that, forgot that I'm supposed to say hi. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's been a long night, okay? Okay. Well, it's donor pick time, and Aaron and I, well, Aaron more than me, couldn't be more excited to finally talk about this one. Damien Chazelle's La La Land both surprised and delighted us, and not only us, but so many others. In his second feature... Wait, 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 hold on. Wait, what? What are you talking about? We're covering La La Land. <laughs> I thought that's what we're doing, right? No, no, this is embarrassing, Patrick. What? I was looking at the voting, and I don't think La La Land won, or was even in the poll. What? Really? Yeah. Wait, are you sure? It was Barry Jenkins' Moonlight that actually got the votes for this one, because apparently it is my lot in life to suffer again. Oh, Too no. soon, man. Too soon. Wow, man. Wow. Well, <laughs> this is embarrassing. Um, uh, okay. <clears throat> okay. Well, let, let's try this again then. <clears throat> Excuse me. Okay. Barry Jenkins' Moonlight, the real Oscar winner of 2017, powered its way into our hearts, and it's a film that definitely leaves its mark. I think we're on the right track now. Okay. <laughs> Unfortunately, that's true. <laughs> I think the unicorn is still out there for us to catch at some point to cover this. <laughs> hey, you know podcast. what? This is our second episode on Moonlight. Technically, not your and I's second episode, but the but podcast. Feeling, so yeah. that means that we are definitely due to do La La Land together since just like Moonlight, we were unable to do that one together as well. Fair enough, man. Fair enough. Well, with that, we're going to give you, I guess, the second time an official spoiler alert, <laughs> letting you know that we are going to be talking about this movie in depth. So if you haven't seen it, really do yourself a favor and check this one out. Uh, I did for the first time. This is a first time watch for me. So I know Aaron's anxious to hear my thoughts and I'm anxious to hear his. And hopefully you're anxious to hear ours, but filled with all kinds of spoiler talk. So with that said, we're getting into one word takeaways, Aaron. I am going to go with the word perspective. And I had quite a few that I was trying to draw from uh, for this film, but you know, we talked about this in our last episode when we discussed Barry Jenkins' newest film, If Bill Street Could Talk, and how it showed us a love story in a way that Hollywood films rarely do. And Moonlight offers a perspective that I'm not sure has ever been shown before. If it has, I'm not aware of it. And it does so in a way that makes it very easy for us to experience empathy for the lives of the people that we see on screen and for the struggles that they have within their specific environment. All three acts of this film show us something very different, a different part of life of someone going through and what that could look like. And they're all very powerful in their own way. And I just really appreciate the way that Barry Jenkins puts his camera into communities of marginalized people, 
when it comes to representation as far as Hollywood goes and the ground level human way in which he shows us what their lives are like. It's incredibly special. It reminds me a lot of Sean Baker and the way that he makes films as well. And I just appreciate that style so much because I mean, I don't want to use the word important too much, but I think it is important to have films that are diverse like this and show us a perspective that we don't get to see otherwise. Yeah, I think that I definitely agree with your one word takeaway. It does give us perspective and watching if Bill Street could talk so recently before watching this one, you can tell the kinds of things that Barry Jenkins wants to do with the camera, with the stories, with the people. And when I walked away from this, I had trouble picking out a word. I had three or four, but I had an epiphany as I was making the notes out for the episode tonight. And the word that kept coming to mind was fractured. And when I look at the story of this guy, I really put myself in a position to see how fractured his life was, how incomplete Barry Jenkins showed it to us in these three acts. We don't see a lot of filler, but even in the moments that we do get to see with him, it feels very incomplete. It feels like he doesn't have the answers. He's still searching and still searching and still searching. And you could say it makes you feel empty, but at the same time, it makes you feel like this is the human experience. We're always trying to find what our lot in life is, trying to find our identity, some things that we'll, we'll talk about more in detail. But as I think its purpose is really well done in that he gives us these moments in the movie that we gravitate towards. And just like Beale Street, it's all centered around conversations. There are maybe two or three, quote, action sequences, but even that feels very intimate because it's all about the faces. It's all about the words. It's all about the people in this regard. And I, it makes me really want to watch. I think it's his first feature that was out in 2008 or maybe it was a short film. And so with that medicine for melancholy, I believe is what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. It really makes me want to check that out to see if he uses a lot of these techniques early on in his filmmaking. Well, as we get into the film, we, talked a little bit about the structure. We kind of alluded to it. And of course, if you're listening now and you really don't care about spoilers, we'll let you know this is built in three acts. These three acts are giving our main character Chiron. I think this is how you pronounce his name. Is it Chiron? I think he's a Greek mythological figure. I think it's Chiron. Is, Chiron. Yeah, is how okay. it's pronounced in the film. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I don't catchy. think he's like the, the boatman for the damned. Well, whatever. yeah, I, I, I read it and I have to like phonetically. That's Chiron or something. Yeah, anyway. That's Chiron. Yeah, it's Chiron is, is how he's, <laughs> I was, his name is pronounced that way. Anyway, so the, the movie centers around his life at three specific ages, eight, 16, and I guess in his mid-20s. And each one tells its own story. Aaron, it reminded me a lot of five centimeters per second, to be honest. Yep. I think, And I think that the impact that this episodic storytelling made on me from five centimeters was duplicated here in completely different ways, but it was still very impactful. And I wanted to know from your perspective, what acts did, did the act three act structure work for you? And if so, did any one particular stand out? Yeah. So look, when I first came to this film, I think I approached it with 
a very different mindset than I have come to now. Two years later? Three years later? It's three. three. My goodness gracious. It's been three years, Patrick. And I went into this looking at it more with a, a critical eye about what it was about um, with the characters specifically and not as much about the filmmaking of it. I guess what I'm saying is I've changed and grown as a film critic in three years of covering movies constantly. And so I saw this a lot differently now than I did then. I really, really enjoyed it. And I was really respectful of the way in which it was created back then. But I am really blown away by it now. And I think being able to watch this removed from a comparison of La La Land, like everything was La La Land versus Moonlight when I watched it. And so there was an element of hoping (laughs) it was going to be bad, looking for the reasons to not love it. Right. And so now with some time behind that, I'm able to look at it anew and I can tell you, I absolutely think it is one of the the few best films of that year without question. I have no problem with it being representative of the Best Picture winner since it wasn't La La Land. I mean, I would have been mad pretty much if it was much of anything else. And so, so I'm just giving my overall, I guess, opinion that I really do love this film. And I think that the three-act structure is a huge positive in its favor. Uh, and I think... It's because of that word perspective. There's something that is extra powerful. It's almost Patrick like getting to watch three movies of three different people, even though it's the same guy at the center, because we've never really seen a movie about a young child who is experiencing these strange feelings that he doesn't know how to deal with. He's he's just kind of exploring his his own coming into sexual feelings and and the world around him and how that is being kind of pushed onto him via bullying and other forms. He's dealing with a mom that is sort of not really present yet and is, you know, beginning to slip into drug usage and trying to find these ways to to keep food on the table. And he's just, he's, he's a, he's a very unique character in the area that he's growing up in. And then it's very different, as well when we see him in high school and then it's very different as well when we see him as an adult and so I feel like I get an amazing look into three individual lives and I get the added bonus of getting to go on this journey with one character at the same time it's kind of hard to put into words but I really do enjoy it and I will say that I I think when I watched it the first time For me, the memorable act, if one was going to stand out, was always the third act with Black. It's still my favorite. It's still the one that is most powerful to me. But I've found a a much higher appreciation and much more value in both of the other acts as well. And so I think that they are all very even. I think they all are critical um, to the experience of going through this journey with him. I, I think that the way that Barry kind of takes us on this path through key moments in Chiron's life, whether it's a swimming lesson in the ocean or a conversation at the dinner table or 
one horrible mistake in an an event in high school um, or one conversation in a diner. It's really very specific set pieces that drives this film one or one or two in each act. Um, And I like that. I like that a lot because we're not trying to cover what has gone on with these characters over a 20 year period. We're trying to capture emotion and feeling and struggle. And we can do that really well just in this snapshot method that he uses. The strength of Moonlight, I think, lives in the fact that Barry uses these moments. As in Beale Street, we don't really know or on a grand scale really care about the lives of these people. I say that in a very cinematic way in that this could be anybody. This isn't like the life of a young Martin Luther King or a young whoever, you know, pick your, pick your celebrity, pick your person who, this isn't a biopic, in other words. Same thing with Beale Street. You had a snapshot over the course of a few weeks, a few months of two people who were in love trying to make it work, uh, surrounded by injustice and, and things like that. This is the story of Chiron at different points in his life. And I think that what Barry does very well, intentionally or not, is what you alluded to, is he creates these episodic tales, these episodic narratives that could be self-contained. If you watched Black in and of itself without the other two, I think it could stand on its own. I think there's enough beginning, middle, and end that you can infer it may not be as emotionally impactful, but it's still good storytelling. Same thing with Chiron and with Little. You have what I think is a complete beginning, middle, and end, but like a good long-form storytelling te- technique, you have the ability to thread them and give more immersion into the into that character and into the lives of the people that he touches through that thread. So I think what Barry Jenkins is able to allow us to do is to connect intimately on a microscopic level. But as we watch the whole thing to get to the end of the movie and say, wow, that's a journey on a macro level that I can really, really connect with. And I think for me, the first act little really set the tone in a powerful way because we weren't just getting backstory. We were getting hints of what would get echoed in Chiron and in black later on that kind of come to fruition. But in and of themselves, you have such a great performance by someone who doesn't have to say a lot. And that's a character piece for him. It's a character trait that defines him later on. Yeah. I think using the three names and the three act structure is a way also of taking us through different identities over the course of a lifetime. So that's what's unique about this as a coming of age story, because it is a coming of age story, but we're so used to seeing coming of age stories happen over the course of a summer when your entire life changed and you went from, you know, this person to now you're a new person three months later. And we both love those. We adore them with all of our hearts, but this is a coming of age story that is actual realistic. And it shows a progression of how you identify. And and that was one of my almost one more takeaways actually was going to be the word becoming, because I feel like, Every act is Chiron dealing with this struggle of becoming something, becoming who he's going to be. And it's these all these things that are, you know, funneling into what his identity is going to be. And he's trying to figure that out. 
And it's so easy to relate to that. Even if I'm not gay, even if I'm not black, even if I don't, you know, don't have a mom who's a crackhead, I can understand what it feels like to be searching for myself and looking for the thing that I want to use to represent who I am going to be. And there's a great conversation with Kevin about that in the end that I think makes it very clear that that's what Barry was going for here. And so I love the different names that he goes by. And I love the importance of the names that, you know, that little is a nickname given to him as bullying, essentially, from these kids in the neighborhood. So it is something that he did not choose himself. He tries to take his own name back in the second act and go by Chiron and just be just Chiron, right? He's just Chiron, just the teenage high school kid. Leave me alone. I'm just me. And, and it, you know, dad doesn't work. And Kevin gives him the nickname Black. And of course, that's what he then is sort of going by in this new world. And that has special significance because of who called him that and how that name came to be. So I, I really like the way that the titles work in this one as well. I mean, it goes back to what we always love about the power of a name and what that means. And it's interesting that the two names that stand out to me, Little and Black, were names that were given to him. Well, I guess Chiron was given to him as well. But when we talk about nicknames, they were given to him for character reasons, not because of anything about him being born necessarily. Although there might be some meaning behind Chiron, I'm not sure. But I also found it interesting that his relationships with these characters, as a first-time watch, I got a little confused because I didn't quite catch some of the names. And so Barry Jenkins uses, obviously, different actors to portray the different ages for Chiron, but he also uses a different actor for each act with Kevin. And so that was, at first, a little bit more challenging for me to attach myself to but again i think it reinforces that individual storytelling of the three acts and how they thread together because there's barry jenkins is doing something very obvious here he's saying that life changes and we change with it and i think he's being very on the nose with how these characters look he's not obviously he'll show a young kid and his best friend kevin but normally when you see someone get older especially in a movie you see kind of an older version of them in a later act and you see kind of how they look currently in the middle act. So you, you get more connection physically with this character as they get into teenage and, and young adult. Whereas here we have three different actors, or in this case between Caron and Kevin, six different actors portraying the, the, this relationship, these two characters and the relationship they have. And I think there's something significant there about the fact that Kevin does not recognize him when he walks into the diner, not just because he's not seen him in several years. We haven't seen him in several years. So we kind of have that disconnect as well. And I think Barry Jenkins is really playing with the fact that people don't stay the same, Aaron. People change and they either change because they choose to or they change because they're asked to or they're made to or because life thrusts that on them and they change because they have to and because they can't help it. And I think it's those relationships for Chiron that help define that. And the film opens up with this relationship between Little, Chiron in the first act, and this guy named Juan, played by the incredible Mahershala Ali. And 
what we get from it's not the very opening sequence, but it's the scene just after where we get introduced to Juan. We kind of glean what he is. He's this cool car driving guy, walks up, talking to his homie, and we know that he's a pusher. He 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 sells drugs. And so immediately my mind goes to, what's this guy gonna be like? And then he interacts with Little and he invites him over to get something to eat. And then he brings him home to meet his girlfriend. And so over the course of this first act, we see that Juan is more complex. He's not just this flat character that we see in a lot of movies. He has complexity. And to me, I look at him and I see him as a challenging character for us because I rarely ever think about someone who chooses a life like that within the Hollywood narrative as actually having a relationship with someone that they can be a father figure to. And there's something compelling that I think Barry Jenkins does with, with Juan where he sees the moment he sees little, he almost seems like he's compelled to take care of him. Like he's not trying to push him off. He's making sure that he's taken care of. He sends him home eventually, but then they have this really interesting friendship that develops and it really does amplify his character. And I thought, man, what a fantastic way to round out a character by giving him substance, by giving him empathy. And by the end of the first act, I got to a place where I'm saying, I feel bad for Juan in what he's being asked to confess to, that he's a drug dealer and that he sold drugs to Little's mom. And that that doesn't actually get resolved, Aaron. Nope. I mean, it, it was it was like, wait, what? what's going to happen? I mean, we never see him again. We hear him referred to, but... It made me go, oh, and I just kind of took a breath and said, okay, I guess this is kind of the ride we're in for. We're not necessarily going to get a clean, happy ending with, with this story. And so it kind of helps set up eventually kind of the tone of the rest of the, of the story. Yeah. So the one storyline is incredible and it, you know, you, it really has to be when you're going to, when you see somebody who won a best supporting actor Oscar for being in a movie a third of the time or less, you know that they did a lot of work in that time. And I know there's a story out there about Mahershala Ali having to fight for this role. He wanted it so badly and I couldn't find it before the podcast. Unfortunately, I've read it at one point, Google it, see if you can find it. It's really, it's really incredible how he worked so hard to make sure that he could take this because it was important to him. And I think it shows, I think we are conditioned to view People who sell drugs as a certain way. We see them in certain situations. We do not see them at home domesticated with a girlfriend or wife. We do not see them being father figures who are checking in on a kid who's being bullied and being chased down the street. We do not see them having incredibly poignant and difficult conversations at a kitchen table of being asked these questions that a, a young man is not able to ask his own mother and trying to deal with that. Uh, we don't see that, right? But that's reality. Not every person who deals drugs in this country is actually on the street with 
uh, a pocket full of different guns and waiting to get into a gang fight, right? But that's what that's what we are shown. Um, and for these people, it is just a way of life. It's simply how he makes money, how he goes about keeping his house together, keeping his, you know, girlfriend fed, etc. And yeah, it does provide a lot of complexity to his character because you may be judging him as you're watching him and then you're put in this position to deal with that moral gray area of are you going to hold that against him well or is he is he somehow absolved of his actions and i love that scene with paula specifically because of that when she's screaming at him and she's like you're going to raise my son now you're going to keep selling me rock because you can see it all over Juan's face it's like he understands like this is what i am but he's also this other thing Right. And so people can do good and bad things. People can make smart and not smart choices. And, um, and I think that that's what we see here. And I, I just love, love, love his relationship with little the, the way that he allows little to be quiet. How many people do you think would do that? Um, and I think even more so for a culture that is, um, commonly depicted as fatherless um there is a big importance to seeing a man willingly take on that role in a young man's life that's not his own and be whatever he needs that that little man needs him to be you know what i mean like he's not projecting himself onto little to make little into something that Juan wants him to be. He is letting little direct the flow of the relationship. And he is just sitting back and giving him what he needs when he needs it. And that's hard. That's hard for an actual parent to do, man. You know, like we both have kids, uh, you know, and it, I, I, it's hard for me to be like Juan. I, I don't, I can't even imagine trying to have this conversation with my own son. Um, if he was to sit there and sit at the table and say when he's six or seven years old, what's a, what's a faggot, right? Like when he asked that question, the, the acting that Mahershala Ali goes through in that scene alone is Oscar is the Oscar worthy moment because it's incredible. And, and I love what he says to him. He says, a faggot is a word used to make gay people feel bad. Right. And he says, you can be gay, but don't let ever let anybody call you that. And that, and, and I, I love the way that he approaches this relationship with kindness and with grace and with room for little to grow and just discover and, and not be told this is what you are. This is what you need to be. Uh, it's, it's a really impactful relationship. I think that really comes to kind of an important moment when he's talking to little on the beach and he talks about the origin of the nickname Blue that he actually never takes. He is asked about it. He tells the story and Little says, so is that you call yourself Blue? He goes, no. And he comes around to say, you basically got to, I'm misquoting him, but he's basically saying, you've got to make a name for yourself. Don't let the world define you. And there are these times during the movie where that's a 
struggle for him. And I like that Juan doesn't push that. He doesn't make him do something. He just gives him the advice. And it's almost as if he feels a sense of optimism after that conversation. But when it comes to Little, I think the influence that Juan has is that he doesn't push, that he doesn't make a conscious decision to force him to be something that he's not because he doesn't know what he is. And as you said, there's that freedom to say, your life isn't defined. It's a blank slate at this point. And it's pivotal in that moment where he asks about the word faggot, because that's a beginning stage of being defined by something other than who you are trying to define yourself as. I like that Juan handles it delicately. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't get defensive. And he doesn't even get kind of self-inspired. Doesn't, And that's why it's an Oscar moment, Aaron, is because of the fact that it's handled with grace. He's not trying to tell him that being gay is wrong. He's not trying to say, be your own man. He's saying, this is what it is, and you can be gay, but you do not have to be called that. So having a relationship like that, like one, I think sets little out on a path, maybe not the right path, but I think it's why we see a kind of a circular identity happen by the time we get to the third act where little is now black. He's got the crown on his, uh, his, uh, dashboard. And so he's emulating a lot of what one had shown him. And so in some ways I feel like he failed, but in some ways I felt like he succeeded. So taking on somebody's identity and owning it, I think is better than having the identity thrown at you. That may be what he's kind of struggling with. Mm-hmm. But but more than anything, what Moonlight does is explore this theme of masculinity in the urban world. Because we see him in three pockets of his life. And in all three pockets, he's got a moment of proving his masculinity at some point. And I wondered if you ever saw, if there was a moment to you or maybe a scene that made you think he actually came to terms with who he was and became comfortable in his own skin. No, there's not. (laughs) That's the short answer. Okay. I don't think there is. I think, you know, this is the conversation he has with Kevin is that he's still not sure when we see him in that diner. It's not a perfect ending to the movie. Like those coming of age films I talked about where in the way, way back you're driving home in the same car that you left in. And instead you're a different person. And now you know who you're going to be when you walk back into your normal life. That's not what happens in this movie. And that's much more, I think, realistic to how change occurs in people there's very rarely like this one moment where i'm like okay now it's all different patrick everything is different now and Mm -hmm. i can i can look back and point to that it's it's almost always a slow series of relational experiences or something like that 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 build up and over time start to change your views the way you make choices etc and so I don't think that Chiron ever really comes to term with who he is. Uh, I think he confronts it in black a couple of different times, both when he's sitting down with Kevin 
and Kevin calls him out on some things. It's, Why are you wearing those teeth? And he very quietly, embarrassingly removes them to the side temporarily. Um, and then also with his mother when she's in rehab and he's having this really powerful conversation with her that brought me to tears. I think he starts to think about who he is and what he's become and whether or not that needs to continue or he can be something else. But I think more than anything, what it shows us is it shows us the really difficult struggle that occurs throughout your life when you grow up like this and how the little unintended things that happen to you when you're a boy, um, the bullying you experience, the hatred from others because of your perceived sexuality, even when they, that's the thing. Like, honestly, it's perceived for almost the entire movie. The, there's only one act of actual sexuality and it's handled in an extremely like exploratory manner of they don't know really what they're doing. You're just trying to see, you know, like that's the only thing we ever see. You could, in a sense, you could almost watch this movie and look at these two as really, really close friends who without that one scene on the beach, you know, the story could be the same, but it's all about believing someone is gay because of the way he carries himself. It's not like Chiron's proclaiming that to the world and to these boys to Terrell, the bully. And so you see how that is affecting someone and how it can change the course of their life and how it can fracture their view of themselves all the way into his twenties to the point where he doesn't have an identity. I think that's the key. Um, but I agree. I love that the, the gray area of Juan being his representative of masculinity in this world and him taking on not only the positives that came from that, but because that was his role model in a sense, it's like, it's almost like he feels compelled, like he's going to become that same guy. Um, and I think that's what masculinity does look like in an urban world for the most part is strength, not going to back down. Um, you, you can't be, perceived as weak you can't be perceived as wearing skinny jeans you know or other um you have to be hard and that's why you get exploited is when you're not that way uh and then so you become something you're really not you wear a mask you put this facade on and i think it's it's toxic clearly uh, but it's different than the toxic masculinity that Maybe other cultures, such as, you know, white folks that live in the city uh, growing up may experience, or Asian cultures. It's a different type of that, and one that we don't typically ever get to see explored. Well, I think what Barry Jenkins does effectively is he defines multiple exercises of masculinity and how they can all be exposed as not really being real. And that may be that he's leaving us with some ambiguity in that masculinity is what you interpret it as could be wrong, but you look at each of the characters, the main characters, supporting characters, and even some of the side characters and how they actually carry themselves. You mentioned the way that Chiron walks, the way he moves, and it's a certain kind of posture, partic particularly in the second and third act as a, as a kid, he's going to walk like a kid, you know, just kind of a, you know, a run and maybe a, 
a slight kind of dawdle, but the way in which he physically carries himself around school and then the contrast that to the way he carries himself in his, I guess, 20s, we'll, we'll call it his, his mid 20s. There is a posture, even the way that he's built himself up physically. I mean, he is a muscular dude. He is very fit. He has the teeth. He's intimidating. And so he is carrying himself in a certain way that's going to be defined and defining of how he will be perceived. But compare that to all these other men, all these other male characters that are in the movie. One of the scenes that I thought was really, really great was when Kevin bumps into him after school and he's hanging out trying not to get beat up by Tyrell. And he starts telling him this outlandish story about how he had sex with this girl and how she got him in trouble because she was being too loud and all this stuff. And the whole time, you know, he's just telling a lot. You know, he is just overly ambitious with this story because he's loud, because, you know, it just doesn't seem real. And then you see later on that his feelings are actually genuine towards Caron. And it makes that scene almost a little bit stereotypical, almost a little bit shallow, because it's almost like he overcompensates for what he's actually trying to hide, which is this genuine feeling that he has for his friend. Whether it's sexual or not is a different story altogether. But the fact is, it's it's as if Barry Jenkins is saying, in order to hide who we really are, we really have to overblow this other persona that we think people are actually going to uh, believe. And so you see that with him. You see one who you don't get a lot of backstory on, but seeing him in that complex role, you know that masculinity to him isn't defined by what he does. It's also defined by how he treats his girlfriend by how he treats little and even the the bullies Terrell and his friends are depicting a certain kind of masculinity bowing up making fun and so Barry Jenkins throws all these kinds of definitions of masculinity at us and by the end of the film he's saying what is it to you which I think is a pretty pretty amazing concept yeah I would even add that both one and then later on black treat their drug dealers because they are like a kingpin essentially who's running the street with these various people that are working for them they treat them much differently than you typically see in these movies as well there's a respect factor that they have for those young men and they see themselves coming up as these young men um one the the initial guy in the very first scene of the movie you know he's like kind of freaking out he's like he hasn't really necessarily gotten what he needs to i guess and you know he's a little nervous around one but one encourages him and he doesn't like come down on him he's not he's not talking to him like he's trash you know what i mean he's talking to him like he's a partner uh and later black does the same thing he has like a really kind of it's one of the movie's only comedic moments where he kind of like messes with the new guy. Um, but he treats him with that same respect that Juan has showed him. And so it's it's really interesting to see that carry over into that world that we see as such a criminal bad thing, right? Um, but yet there is a level of the way that that's, I guess, treated um, 
where people actually care about each other within that culture too. Yeah, there's a respect and a love that probably is unspoken, but is enacted in those kinds of conversations and situations. One of the other big themes that Barry Jenkins explores is this need for parenting and mentorship. And of course, it all centers around Chiron. And I love that we see Constance in his life. Not a person named Constance, but constant people. And Kevin and Paula and Teresa, I think, are the three that Barry specifically keeps us close to because they all have significance to him in some way, shape, or form. They all impact his perspective of the world, his value of life in one way or another. And I specifically wanted to talk a little bit about this dual relationship that he has, this motherly relationship that he has with both Paula, his mom, his actual mom, and then Teresa, who is Juan's girlfriend, who he stays in touch with and stays connected to even after Juan has left the picture. Again, I don't know what happened to him. I don't know if the movie tells us. Um, I didn't. Juan is dead. Okay. It does tell us. Okay. Oh, yes. I, I he died. Okay. Yeah. The mom, Paula, at one point says, you know, something, 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 Juan died. Okay. Yeah. So. He's, he's passed away, unfortunately. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so, I mean, we're not told why. We're not told, is it a drug deal that went bad? Is right. it, we don't know. And I think that's part of the important part here is like, we're left to speculate and can confront our own assumptions even. Right. So we're left with Teresa and Paula, these two female figures in his life. And from the early act, we, I'll say this personally, I didn't expect Teresa to be who she was. Whenever I think of going back to a stereotype, when I think of a movie drug dealer's girlfriend, I don't see someone who has a nice place, who knows how to treat a guest and who is acting like a mom and who has this really great impact on little early on. You know, she's feeding him chicken and she's letting him breathe just like Juan is. And then we see in the second act how influential she's become where she's able to speak into his life and be very real with him. She says, if you want to stay here, you can, but you need to know how to make the bed because you are terrible at it. You don't know how to do it. And I, I wanted to ask, these are two great performances and I can't remember. Did I think Naomi Harris won supporting act? I was going to say I, if she did, that's Paula. I, yeah. I thought she was incredible mm -hmm. in this. Yep. So looking at these two, what did you think about how they quote parent Chiron? <laughs> so I see three big issues, three, three big things, and, and they're done differently between the two women. So one is money, how money is handled. Juan and Teresa give Chiron money, little money, and provide him a place to stay. They give him things he needs to get by. Paula takes things from Chiron. She steals his money. She kicks him out of his house and does not provide a place for him to stay. The other one would be food. And you touched on that. Teresa makes him food. Teresa is always willing to give him a meal. What do we see when Chiron is at his house? It's him making his own meal because mom can't be relied upon to do that. So he's doing it. And then the third is specifically how they approach his identity and his potential uh, struggle with his sexuality. 
And that's his mom who it's handled in that one conversation very clearly with Juan at the end of yelling at him about how he's not going to raise her son and he's, is he going to keep selling her rocks, etc. She talks about the fact that she thinks Sharon is gay and that they both know it and they both understand that that's why the other boys kick his ass, but that she doesn't want to tell him. Whereas when he sits down at that table with Juan and Teresa, Teresa is part of that conversation as well. And it's that, in fact, she's the first one to speak when little asks how he's going to know. She says, you'll know when you know. And then Juan, of course, follows that up with, you don't got to know right now, not yet. They accept him. Teresa does, especially for who he is, as he's going through figuring that out and becoming whoever he is going to be. It doesn't really matter. They love him for what he is right now. His mom, unfortunately, is wrapped up in a world that doesn't allow her to do that. And, you know, drugs are obviously a big part of that. Lack of money and, you know, taking on dangerous tasks such as sex work in order to get that money, whether it's for drugs or just to get by, she doesn't treat him right. I mean, he has nightmares about her screaming into his face. And so Teresa definitely fills that void as he's growing up. But I think the final scene with her in rehab, while you could almost look at it and I guess say, oh, well, we're kind of entering like fairy tale territory because everything's going to work out. Mom's going to get better. But mom's not really better. I mean, she's better, but she is still there <laughs> because she has to stay there. But there is the start of some forgiveness and of an attempted desire, a desire shown to want to maybe begin to mend a relationship. Both of them understanding that they can't go back and it can't change 20 plus years of how she brought him up. And they're both always going to carry pain and hurt because of that. But she grows as well. And I think it's interesting to me where we're left off with instead of a six or seven year old boy who obviously needs his mother because he doesn't even have a dad having someone else be that parental figure in his life to instead it being in his twenties when it sort of starts to shift and change to where his mom is someone that might actually be able to start speaking into his life in a healthy way. And it's, it's fascinating, but um, it's very unique and or it's, it's unique to see it on a screen. Sorry. It's not unique to people. People go through this and that's the point. Um, but yeah, I think the dichotomy between Teresa and Paula is obviously really impactful for how he grows up. It is. And I think if you think of it like a directional, Paula is a, has a pull mentality where she's always trying to pull him closer. In fact, at one point he comes home, she's strung out on the couch and he puts a blanket on her and she says, you're mine, you're my only one or something to that degree, implying that you're not going to get out of this. You're always going to be mine. Maybe that's not what she meant, but that's kind of what I picked up. Whereas Teresa is a push kind of relationship where she's trying to push him forward. She's like, if you're going to live here, you need to know how to do these things. You're welcome to stay, but I'm not going to let you freeload. And 
I think that throughout the course of the film, he has that dichotomy and it pushes and pulls him back and forth because he can't escape his relationship with his mom. And when we get to that last act where he's sitting there with her, you're exactly right. She's better, but only within that space. If she were to leave by her own admission, she would probably fail. She would probably go back to the street. She would probably become the same person that she was. And so she's confined to a place that she's choosing to be better, but only in a limited space. And there is a bit of a redemptive dialogue between the two, but you can tell that he's still not comfortable with it. I think that he is a person who wants to have that resolution, but understands that there's a lot of hurt. And you're right. I think it's a very, very much a beginning of something. But like everything else almost in this movie, Barry Jenkins leaves us with a lot of what if and maybes and possibilities, some positive, some not. Even leading up to the to the end of the movie, we're still left with questions. And I think that's by design because that's how life is. Life is full of unresolved issues. Life is full of understandings that you'll agree to disagree, that you're going to have relationships with other people. You know, when you, to use divorce as an example, you're going to have amicable relationships with your ex-husband or your ex-wife for the sake of the kids. In some cases, potentially those relationships are better. In a lot of cases, they're not because the reason why a couple splits is for reasons that prevent them from being together, just even in the same room. I'm grateful that in the relationships that I've seen around me of couples that have separated, they find value in each other either as a result of their kids or at the very least as a means to say, you know what, we just we weren't right for each other. So I think in some ways Barry Jenkins is putting Black in that position with his mom where he's saying, I don't think things will ever be better than they – I don't think things will ever be great or ever be perfect or ever be ever, ever be like in like rainbows and puppies or anything like that. But I think we're left thinking it could be. At the same time, it couldn't be. But we're left kind of being given that option to think optimistically or not. And that's reality. That it's okay if it doesn't resolve. It's okay if it does. But life doesn't hang in the balance. And I think for a guy like Caron, he has lived his life within this narrative, understanding that not everything's going to work out. Some things are, some things aren't, but I can't stop living. And that conversation with his mom, I think, was kind of an eye-opener for him. It's why I think he leans over and kisses her on the forehead and says, I'll see you, I'll see you soon, Mom. But one other thing I wanted to talk about before we get into our connecting points was really just about something that I was thinking about leaving this viewing. It's something I don't think about quite a bit, and it's really just how it impacts me. Um, a lot of what I took away from this is that lack of resolution, but also about the fact that there are relationships that Caron has that never seem to end, that he can pick them up and put them down at will. And 
when I think about what that leaves with me, I think about the fact that relationships don't have to be constant to be significant, that his relationship with Kevin was impacted by moments that we got to see, uh, maybe some moments that we didn't. But I feel like for me, I look at Moonlight as an opportunity to realize that relationships are going to help define us and that we're going to help define those relationships that we have with people. They might come and go, but what I value about them is the significance that they have on my life. And I think that Barry does a fantastic job of being able to show that the connection that Caron has, even though he kind of lives, mo most of the narrative is kind of lived just with him and what we see of him, it's those relationships, good and bad, that help shape his life. And I wanted to know if it was anything that the movie left with you or that you took away from it and watching this. I mean, I guess I would just say that I think that for the most part, it, this is all about a journey. And it reminds me that everyone we meet is going to consistently be on a journey. I don't know that anyone ever really gets to a point where they are defined. I think we're always ebbing and flowing and we're changing and evolving. And what we want one day may not be exactly the way that we want something the next day. And I think that Kevin kind of really sums this up for by, by challenging Chiron in the end. And he, he says, who is you? He's like the fronts, the car, you hard now. He's like, who is you? Like, it makes me want to like ask that question to myself about who am I, you know, who am I going to be? And is there something about me that is not real or that is a result of my upbringing or a result of the way that people treat me or the way that people think I should be? And I really enjoy like being challenged to think about that in my own life, as well as just the awareness that I think this movie brought to me about understanding that other people go through things that I will never, ever experience. I may have experienced being bullying. I, I certainly did, uh, but it was for being fat or for having big ears. It was never about my sexuality. And so I can relate to some of what is happening here, but other parts of it, I will never be able to relate to because I grew up with a dad who was engaged and part of my life. And I grew up with a mom who was as well. And, and really it breaks my heart to see it simultaneously breaks my heart to see and know that there are so many children out there in the world who will grow up like this. But it also gives me hope that there are Juan's and Teresa's out there to help pick up the slack. So it makes me want to always be aware so that if it's my time to pick up the slack and to be the one, then I'm ready to be the one. Um, and I want to be the guy who is a one, not a drug dealer, but I would, I would like to be able to have the conversation that one has with my own kids or someone else's kids, if need be in a way that he does. Um, and, and I want to be able to, to do that. And so that's kind of where it leads me. And also just reflecting on the beauty of friendship. I still am not convinced in any way, shape or form that Kevin is gay. I don't know that 
we ever get a sense that he is or is not. I think that Kevin understands brotherly love more than anything else. That's what I see on display. And that final shot is what we're left with, like literally in the film. But he has just been told by Chiron that he is the only man who ever touched him. And Chiron is opening up saying how he hasn't really touched anyone since. And they're standing apart and they're looking at each other. Kevin gives his classic grin, which is just all the time. He's flashing that little grin. And that last shot is him holding Chiron's head on his shoulder. And it's Chiron resting peacefully for the first time. Like almost just like a weight has finally come off. He can be safe. He can feel close to someone and is so tender. And to me, there's nothing sexual about it at all. That it is just two human beings, one who understands that this person is hurting and in, and has a need. And he is providing that for him. And I think that, to me, is one of the more important pieces of this, the way that this movie is shot, because it doesn't have to always, like, that's the whole point. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether he's gay or not gay or whatever. What matters is, the actions that are being taken place is Kevin cares about Chiron and his well-being and his mental state and his health and who he is. And he wants to help him figure that out. And he is there for him in a moment of need. And that's what being good humans to others is about. Um, and so I, I guess I'm kind of left with just thinking about that as well. It's I mean, it's it's powerful to have that left to think about. Um, there was a quote that I remember by a, a Greek philosopher named Heraclitus who says, no man steps into the same river twice. He is not the same man and it's not the same river. And Jenkins really personifies that by giving us this type of storytelling, by showing us pockets, moments of this person's life of Caron's life, but he doesn't lose the impact of that significant relationship with Kevin. And it goes beyond Aaron, the fact that they just pick up where they left off. It's about the fact that they understand each other. The fact that they see each other beyond the gold teeth, beyond the ripped muscles or the son that Kevin has. All these things are part of who they are. But Kevin is significantly impactful to him because he calls him out because he says who you is, you know, or who you be. That quote it right? I can't remember specifically. Who is you? Who is you? I got the, I got the, the words close. right. Just not in the right order. And, um, and I think when we can pull that from this at the very least, and we understand that life can change and we can change with it, but that through that ebbing and flowing, we're always going to have those relationships that either we impact or that impact us. And in some ways it reminds me of the apostle Paul, when he talks about faith ebbing and flowing and how when someone's a weaker faith, someone from strong, of stronger faith is going to lift him up and vice versa. It tells me that we're going to go through those hills and valleys 
and having significant relationships, having meaningful relationships that get beyond that surface level garbage allow us to be able to live in those moments where we don't have to feel like we're alone. We can, even if we don't feel completely understood, we at least feel accepted and valued and cared for. And I think that's where Caron and Kevin's relationship really does live its authenticity is in the fact that they care for each other. Well, you described a lot of good stuff and I'm hoping that because of the way we do our flow that that I didn't spoil your connecting point or maybe it's the connecting points as, as we often say when we hit a movie this emotional we're like can the whole thing be the connecting point because you know whatever but nonetheless if I haven't hit on it uh, we're moving into the connecting point part of our show and I'll go ahead and kick us off and then you can chime in with anything that might be left you can just say the rest of what I haven't talked about if you just want to sum it up but for me I think that the schoolyard fight and the retaliation was probably the most emotionally impactful part of the movie. And the reason why is because I believe, Aaron, that this is the point when Tyrone goes from being a spectator to a participant in life. We see in the first act, he's always running, he's always reacting, even with the boys on the field when they're playing that kind of makeshift game of soccer, he's backing up and backing up and backing up. And Kevin convinces him to wrestle with him to show these other boys that he's tough, but it's still reactionary. And so we get to the second act and Kevin is convinced to essentially hit him until he doesn't get up anymore. And then, of course, the rest of this terrible, terrible, terrible set of guys just start pounding on him. He takes the punch. He takes the second punch. He takes the beating. And then, two scenes later or one scene later, he snaps. And he, the way the camera work is fantastic because we're following him. And he's determined. He walks into the school. He walks into the hallway. I mean, we don't see a cut from inside the school into the classroom. I mean, we follow him. So we're feeling the intensity that he's feeling. We see him walk into the classroom. We see him pick up a chair. And he bashes Terrell over the back with this wooden chair. And then he proceeds to hit him even more. And it's in that moment, Aaron, that I feel like he took control of his life. It wasn't defined. But I think it's what started him on the path that led to black where he realized whoever I'm going to be, I need to be the one to define that. And we don't get the resolution of that, but it's in that moment. And that's those two scenes where we really get that starting gun for him to say, if I'm going to change my life, I'm going to be who I'm supposed to be, whoever that is, it has to start somewhere. And it starts now and pulling that away and realizing we have to have our defining moments. We all have defining moments in our lives. And they may not be as severe as bashing somebody over the back with a wooden chair, but we've all had those. We've all had those moments where we say, enough is enough. I got to start now. I've got to do this. Some of them may be small, some of them may be large. But for me, that scene, those two scenes together, I think were what helped start him on the journey of full discovery of who he was. Yeah, I mean, it's a tragedy, in my opinion, a huge, huge tragedy. Absolutely it is. That he is pushed to the brink of 
feeling like this is his only way now to stand up to this, his only retaliation he can give to make this stop is to come back. It is He is succumbing to the world, right? The world has told him you have to be that toxic masculine version of the people on our streets in this culture. And if you're not, you're not accepted. And we're going to beat you until you quit or until you give in. And he gives in and he becomes that culture. And it is it is an ultimate tragedy really, it is. Part of his life um, and sets him on a course for the next seven, eight, ten years that, that you know, Again, real world implications. This is fiction, of course. This is based on a play, but this is happening in society. And so this person in the real world goes into prison and who knows how they come out if they come out, right? Now you have no money making potential. And so now you're on the street dealing drugs and then you're back in prison and then it just snowballs from there and then you end up dead at 30 or whatever the case may be, that is the real situation that is occurring here. And we see how we can get to that point from something so semi-meaningless as just being bullied over your your perceived sexuality, right? And that's how big of a deal it is because of how it can affect long-term. Absolutely. Um, good stuff, man. Uh, so, yes, you were right. Like, I did write down, like, five connecting points. I loved this movie the second time around so much i really do connect with a lot of it Um, but the entire third act with black is i feel like i spend this entire thing in tears i just am mesmerized by trevante rhodes's acting in general and i love the acting by andre andre woodard i come i shouldn't even have guessed because i don't remember his name but the actor who plays kevin um, I think that their chemistry is perfect and it's a weird chemistry because it's, you know, Trevante Rhodes. He captures the character of Chiron all the way from little and middle school versions so well. It looks like them only in this big, humongous frame, right? Facial expression wise, uncomfortable, just nervous, scared. He, he looks small despite being so large and I am blown away by his ability to create that persona in this act. But I guess if I had to distill everything to like a favorite moment, and usually I go with like some big overarching theme, but I love, love, love how he walks in the diner and he sees Kevin and Kevin's like figuring out who he is. And he's nervous and he doesn't know what he's going to do. And Kevin tells him, you're here now, man. That's all that matters. And then he goes, there you go with that nodding again. You haven't changed one bit. You still can't say more than three words at a time. And you realize this deep lifelong bond that these two have that is that goes beyond the fact that they haven't seen each other or really even talked to each other in however many seven years or whatever that he's been in prison. And that's a really powerful thing. It reminded me in a way of how we went like five, 10 years almost without really even talking to each other. And then all of a sudden it was like riding a bike when we reconnected. And it's not like all those memories go away. We still have them and we talk about them. We didn't talk about them for seven or eight years when we weren't talking all the time or barely 
had any idea what was happening in each other's lives, but we just slid right back into it. And that's the kind of relationship you see here. And I'm tangenting. See, I'm talking about all of the whole act, even though I said I wasn't going to do that. But it's our show. The, we can do what we want. It's the cool. moment, man, the moment for me is when he's sitting at the counter and he's like, what do you want to eat? And he gives him some options. He's like, or I can give you that chef special. And he cooks for him. And I, I don't listen. There is something incredibly meaningful about food we talk about it all the time at work at the ymca you bring food to a meeting and people pay more attention people are ready to work ready to listen ready to be creative whatever the case may be food gets people in the room and people come together over food we had a black history event on tuesday of this week where some members came in and some staff came together and we just sat around and talked for about an hour and a half a lot about history a lot about the why in general, and we were sharing a meal and it just, it's like a, a method of like getting you to open up and have conversation with each other. Food brings us together, man. And that is what you see here. And cooking for someone is one of the most outward expressions of care as well. Like it is a way to say, I care about you. And when you watch the way that this food scene is shot, the meticulousness of how Kevin is preparing it, I like he's there's a there's one quick cut. He's like brushing the beans to make sure they're perfectly placed on the plate. He's like plate. It's a diner, Patrick. It is a freaking cafe. They're drinking wine out of plastic cups, and he is treating it like they are in the same Italian gourmet restaurant that we saw Fonny and Titian in. If Bill Street could talk, because that's a relationship. That's what matters, and so. I just thought that it showed so much love and I think that being able to see someone do that for black for Chiron was really, really impactful. Um, and obviously it can be life changing for him to, to have somebody show him that much care. And I love everything about that choice and, and everything when they, when they look at each other, the way they talk to each other, I just, it's a beautiful, beautiful scene. And so it's my favorite of the movie, and that's why it's my connecting point. What's interesting about that scene, Aaron, it's fantastic. That's not what's interesting, because it's just obvious. But it's also, I think, the longest scene in a single shot, a single location, that, um, like, the first two acts, I think, are all kind of over the place in short sequences. That, I think, is the longest single shot scene in the movie, which makes a lot of sense because of the incredible impact that it has. So it's really, really good. Well, that'll do it for this episode of Feelin' Film. We hope you guys have enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed talking. We always forward to any kind of feedback you can give for the show. So if you can, just do it. Join us in the next few days as we wrap our heads around the latest Blumhouse production, The Invisible Man, and look for some bonus content for this month, a tad late, where we talk about one of our favorite documentaries, Hoop Dreams. Aaron, thank you for another great conversation, my friend, and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. 
If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.